Imagine you're getting ready for school. Not just any school, but a new school. And you're entering high school. Your school is across town in an area that you've never really been to before. What's great is that you have a few friends that are going with you. So as you get ready to leave the house, you hug your parents. As you walk to the bus stop, you see your friends, and so you join them. As you get on the bus, you have nerves, a little bit of excitement, because it's a new experience. And as you notice, as you get closer to the new school, you see a large crowd of people and a few police cars. As the bus pulls up near the school, you notice the crowd seems to be focused on your bus. The people look furious and mad. There are signs, bats, two-by-fours, and all kinds of things being held. As you exit the bus and walk towards the school, police are trying to create a path for you to walk into the school. While you are walking, the angry group of people are spitting on and spitting at you, throwing things at you and your friends, and calling you some of the most derogatory terms you could think of. When you finally get into the school, students and staff are looking at you with disdain, like you have some type of disease. If any healthy part of you is intact, you know this is not right and not okay. Well, this is exactly what happened to the Little Rock Nine and quite a few black children who were the first to help desegregate schools after Brown versus Board of Education. This episode is about systemic racism in education. And this is a tough one because education is so very peculiar and different in certain pockets of America. It had to depend on quite a few things. But in here, I'm going to stick to the larger impact of systemic racism actions in America that affected our education. Welcome to Do It For The Gram, an Enneagram podcast with your host, certified Enneagram coach, Milton Stewart, where we do it for the Enneagram, not Instagram. We make moves to improve our lives and those in our community. So I'm super excited to get into this episode. I fight for educational equity um, in Memphis because we still have some of the very same funding issues in education as we did, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, to be honest, uh, at least 100 years ago, 50, 60, 70 years ago. So this is very close to me, and this episode's a little difficult because there's so much when it comes to education and systemic racism and systemic issues in it. So I'm going to try to stick to pre-13th Amendment and post-13th Amendment and like going closer to now um, in here with a couple of like little zingers of like, these are some facts around certain things that were put into education that people may not know. All right, let's go intro music. Thirteenth Amendment. Racial biases are not new to the history of the U.S. education system. Dating back all the way to the 1800s, Native American children 
were taken from their homes and forced into boarding schools, where they were pushed to abandon their native language and to adopt a foreign religion. Education was used to assimilate these Native American children to white culture forcibly. This institutional racism created a belief that white culture was better than the Native American way. Definitely might want to do some research on that. They have like literally have pictures from Native Americans going to these schools and wearing certain clothes and like having their hair a certain way. Check it out. It's do some research on that too. It's it's interesting, I guess I would say. These racial biases express themselves with Chinese students as well in a different manner. Instead of forcing them to assimilate and to prescribe to white educational system, Chinese American children were barred completely from going to school. Later, legislation stated that they had the right to a public education, but segregated them to Chinese-only schools. Latinos or Latinx and Hispanic students faced the same fate as the Chinese students in being methodically shut out from education. Latinos were granted access to the education under the ruling of a judge who had the particular belief that he asserted that Latinos were of white descent and therefore above other minorities. So the American South, laws against African Americans completely obstructed their ability to get an education. By law, it was illegal. I'm going to say that again. By law, it was illegal for an African-American to learn how to read and write. African-American communities had to turn to schools established by Quakers and Christians in order to get an education. But turmoil and violence would always find these white allies, forcing these schools to close their doors. And so fear of uprising was palpable in these plantation states and illiteracy became a weapon used against African-Americans. If African-Americans remain uneducated, plantation owners and Southern whites believed they would not revolt, maintaining the status quo of slavery. Now you hear that, right? Illiteracy became a weapon in order to keep African-Americans from learning and actually being able to exercise liberty and rights. Now don't forget, this continues throughout history. This is pre-13th Amendment. All right, so post-13th Amendment, Jim Crow laws then made their appearance around 1877. The separate but equal doctrine created an educational system of segregated schools, which is the doctrine, the court case, Plessy versus Ferguson. Under this doctrine, African-American students had difficulties actually finding schools in their districts, or they were forced into schools that did not meet proper standards. Black schools were also constantly at threat of closure for the favor of funding for their white counterparts. Basically, the funding, which helps schools stay afloat in every place, just about, obviously, um, black schools weren't being funded because now we have this segregation going on. We have black schools, we have white schools, and that's how it was. But the county, the state, the district, they're not really funding black schools or funding them at all. They're funding all the white schools. So black schools are struggling. But that led to some things that actually started to kind of help black communities in a way. And I'll talk about that in a second. So in the 1950s, Brown versus Board of Education turned the separate but equal doctrine on its head by subverting the previous Plessy versus Ferguson ruling. However, progress was met with violence. Schools effectively became war zones. 
where violence called for military involvement when white protesters and African-American students clashed. Photos of students as young as six years old being escorted by U.S. Marshals to and from school flooded newspapers as the racial bias in the education system fueled the coming civil rights movement. So think about that now. Literally, this is the story I was given at the very beginning. We have kids all the way from kindergarten up to high school when after Brown versus Board of Education, who are able to now go to schools that are funded properly, that are completely white, you know, for the most part. And they're having issues because there are white protesters who are becoming violent, who are becoming um, extremely angry um, that and, and so extreme that they literally called in the U.S. Marshals. Think about that now. A U.S. Marshal, not even a police department of that area, has to escort students into school for their safety. Just think about how messed up that is. All right, so the civil rights movement um, brought about legislation that supported and pushed forward more of Brown versus Board of Education. The Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Department Office of the Civil Rights were created during this exact time. Both were enacted to ensure civil rights were upheld and that federal funding would be distributed without discrimination in the educational system. The crazy part about it is that racism is so deeply innate in our country that it's believed that racism no longer exists in our country for many people. In this new racism, blame of underachieving students of color is shifted to their parents who were portrayed as slacking or uninvolved in their children's education. This shifts attention from the policies and structures in action that put a student of color at disadvantage. Additionally, in the case of African-American families, many have been moving to the suburbs in order to pursue safer communities and better access to education. African-American students sometimes find themselves a minority in a predominantly white school Studies of these students have shown that while these students understand that they are free to pursue their education in any school, there's still a sense of being an outsider, of not feeling that they belong. The pressure to perform in such a case is a common feeling among these students of color. And so educational pressures is not only felt, obviously, by African-Americans, but the difference in this pressure is not only to perform and be well and do well in life, but it is, I have to perform because I am an outsider in my skin color. There's a, a like an extra layer of pressure simply because of the color of my skin and how society views me. And I understand that to a certain degree because I went to a school and I would go to class and I would be one of the only black people in there, if not the only black person in there. And so you can guess history after 1865 was real tough for me because every time they talked about any issue on uh, African-Americans and black people, everyone would look at me either before they respond or waiting to see how, what I think about it. So um, it, it is it is something that's very true. That is definitely a pressure because it's like, I cannot fail. And it's like, I'm not just, if I do bad, I'm not just doing bad for me or my immediate family. It's like, I'm doing bad for like a whole, and I hate to use the word race, but race of people, you know, because I'm giving in to what people automatically already think about me and people who have my same skin color. Quick fact correction. So affirmative action 
1995, report by California State Government Organization Committee found that white women held a majority of managerial jobs, uh, which is around 57,000, compared to African Americans, which is around 10,000, Latinos, which is around 19,000, and Asian Americans, around 24 or 25,000, after the first two decades of uh, affirmative action in the private sector. In 2015, a disproportionate representation of white, white women business owners set off concerns that New York State would not be able to bridge the racial gap among public contractors. So the reason I'm throwing this in, because I know affirmative action is something that there's a lot of rhetoric around it and things like that. What's interesting is that the people that benefited the most from it were actually white women. And I don't have a problem with women in general being able to benefit from it, you know, because America is flipped up in a lot of different ways. Um, so I don't mind that. But the, the thing is, people try to use affirmative action to say that they were giving all these educational things to only black people, you know, and they were getting a free ride because they're black and they're keeping out, you know, other uh, white people who were more qualified or something like that. And that's just not the facts. That's it's just not the facts or the truth. Uh, so I, I wanted to put that out there, too, to kind of clear that up, because I know some people try to use that as a point. Um, and I'm not going to go deeper into that, because that could explain affirmative action and why it was necessary to a certain extent. It makes sense looking at the history that we have. I'm not going to go any deeper into that. All right. So back to we're going to talk about black schools. So black schools. As Jim Crow segregation became the law of the land after Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, white Southern leaders questioned the need for the continuance of African-American education and segregated schools remain unequally funded. In an effort to alleviate these conditions, African-American parents and educators relied upon what historian V.P. Franklin describes as cultural capital or non-financial assets to better the conditions of the school. In these often one-room schools, parents work with teachers to maintain physical structures while supporting cultural events and athletic programs. In addition, the cultural capital, as historian James Anderson argues, these families often pay what's called a black tax or double tax because they had to pay local taxes and use their own funds to support their own underfunded black schools. Black teachers also knew that their duties went far beyond academic instruction. They were often required to use their own funds and working outside the school grounds to help their students both inside and outside the classroom. Despite their lower salaries and compensation to white teachers, these educators held important positions within black communities. They reflected the human aspect of the concept of cultural capital as black communities during segregation, placed on economic and social progress of the children in their hands. So here's one thing that I love about communities. I love about um, people and the humanity of people. When things are rough and they're at their dire straits, people actually can pull together and really do some great things for each other. Um, and this is what was happening. Because of segregation, schools were underfunded um, or not funded by the district. I say should have been equally funded by schools that were white, if it's separate but equal. But nevertheless, a lot of black communities rallied around getting the right funding in a different type of way. You know, 
Maybe I work at a store that has, I, I sell, you know, bread. And so I make sure the school has bread and it doesn't cost them, you know, or anything. But maybe they make sure they offer me business outside of that. But I make sure the students have food. So it's like all these different ways that you can come together, even if you don't have the financial, financial things that you need uh, for sure. So that's part of it. All right. On May 17th, 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled the Brown case, remember Brown versus Board of Education, that segregation in the public schools was unequal, it caused an uproar. For Southerners, this decision did not call for an end of segregated schools. It also threatened the foundation of white supremacy, which was constructed upon destructive stereotypes of black intellectual inferiority and fears of black male sexuality. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, some people still perpetuate these same destructive stereotypes. This extensive negative reaction coalesced into a strategy called massive resistance. On May 1957, 101 congressmen issued the Southern Manifesto that declared, we pledge ourselves to use all lawful means to bring about a reversal of the decision which is contrary to the Constitution and to prevent the use of force in its implementation. On every level, from the school board to the state house, Southerners fought this decision. We are familiar with the case in Little Rock, Arkansas, where nine high school students who enrolled in an all-white central high school faced angry mobs and threats from the governor, eventually culminating to President Eisenhower's call for military action to protect these students. While the case garnered national attention, most Southern school officials quietly developed their own plans to delay or denied the implementation of desegregation, including grade per year plans, transfer plans, and school closings. So here's the thing that you really have to catch out of here. 101 congressmen issued a Southern manifesto. Literally, they, they created a Southern manifesto saying that we will not allow desegregation of our schools. We will not allow uh, black students, African-Americans to go to our schools to be educated on an equal basis as other kids. So this is something that literally, you know, literally adults, and this is 1956. Please don't think this is, I think sometimes we get lost in history as if it's like 2,000, 3,000 years ago. No, this was literally 1956. This is not that far ago. So it's not like people are missing some logical way of thinking and being able to impact. No, this is just messed up in our society. Those things that the desegregation of schools and having to have U.S. Marshals come down to protect students going to simply going to school, um, it led to what's called white flight. And that's all connected to uh, redlining, which is episode before this, the GI Bill, which did not help African-Americans, unfortunately, um, and helped white people. So all of this plays in there as well. All right. So. In addition, school boards also funneled money and supplies to existing facilities and constructed new black schools to dispute the claims that they were underfunded and quell the desire for integration. So you have to remember this. A lot of times when organizations or the government is blamed for doing something wrong or they are doing something wrong, they'll find a way to say, oh, no, we're doing right. And they'll find a way to find money somewhere to put towards this, to make it look good, to make it look like they're doing the right thing. Here's the issue. A lot of times that doesn't take into account all the existing structures 
things that were there that were good and implement them. It's just, we're going to create something new. Oh, here's a new black school we're going to create and put some money towards it. Instead of looking at what was the structures beforehand, how was the community beforehand, what good things were going on there as well. You know, instead of doing that, same thing happened to the Native Americans. Instead of saying, wow, those are some amazing things that you have and some great things and culturally you have. How about we merge them and we look at what are the best ways we can collaborate and help each other. Anyway, so when this strategy failed, the one that they were trying to create the new black schools and started trying to funnel money um, into different schools that were predominantly black. When this strategy failed, the federal court ordered four school districts to develop new desegregation plans. I mean, black teachers faced massive job losses as white school boards closed black schools. African-American principals who once held one of the most powerful and prestigious positions within the African-American communities also received demotions or lost their jobs as their school was eliminated. And so here's the issue. So now that those things that they originally tried to do with these new schools and all these things didn't work, they had to come up with a new plan. They created a new plan and it closed majority of black schools because like, oh, they're underfunded. We're going to close them. The issue is now black teachers have lost their jobs and or have to go work at another school, which causes a whole another issue. We'll talk about it a little bit later. And then principals, they're demoted. And so they may have to go into another school, but now you're no longer the principal. Like now you're back in the classroom, even though you manage your class and your school amazingly. Now you're back doing this and you're getting paid quite a bit less. So this is another huge issue that happened. So after the NAACP returned the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board 2, the court ruled that desegregation should proceed with all deliberate speed. So one of the things like the Southern Manifesto, the idea was to, if we're not going to be able to stop it in other little districts, school districts, we're going to slow it down so much where almost like it didn't happen. And so the Supreme Court was like, no, nah, you need to do this at all deliberate speed because right now we're trampling on the liberties and the rights of people in this country. So despite the continuous legal actions of civil rights lawyers, this term did not reflect the depths of Southern resistance as most children still attended segregated schools in 1964. This is about 10 years later, by the way. This year also marked the passage of the Civil Rights Act. This groundbreaking legislation made desegregation a prerequisite to school funding. A year later, Congress passed the Elementary and Secondary Schools Act, a component of President Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty that appropriated money to public schools to fund educational programs and resources for poor children. This funding could also be removed if the school system did not desegregate. Under Johnson, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare also monitored desegregation plans. While the federal government intervened in the area of education regarding desegregation and poverty, the government's role in education has increased since the end of World War II. The Cold War fears of the Soviet Union surpassing the United States, especially after 1956, the Sputnik mission, sparked massive funding increases to support science and engineering in, in the nation's public colleges and influential initiatives such as a new math in public schools. And so what is good in, in this area is the fact that now there's going to be some oversight and overseeing and making sure desegregation actually happens um, in this area of um, this time period in America, which is good because 
the Southern Manifesto said that we're not going to do anything, basically. No one's down here to, like, make sure that we're doing it. And yeah, you passed the law with some rules or regulations, but we don't agree, so we're going to resist it always possible. So now that you've attached funding to your ability to make sure you desegregate and take care of the kids in your community and um, the education and all the people, not just one version of people, not just one skin color or a few skin colors, all of them. Now, when you, you attach funding, people start to make changes. And so this was actually really good for making sure that like schools became desegregated. One of the biggest problems affecting desegregation involved the neighborhoods where children live. Most children lived in racially segregated communities. Remember, we talked about redlining in the episode before this, so make sure you check that out if you haven't already checked that out. Uh, and so the most feasible way to achieve desegregation beyond voluntary transfers was to transport students to schools outside of the neighborhoods. And so this was called busing, okay? Civil rights attorney Julius Chambers and his colleagues successfully made this argument before the Supreme Court called Swan versus Charlotte County Board of Education in 1971. So prior to Swan, school systems in rural areas had transported white students out of their neighborhoods to attend schools for decades, while black students were sometimes denied access to public school transportation. Although students reflected that the majority of white parents did not object to black students attending school with their children, they drew the line when it came to their children having to attend Although studies reflected that a majority of white parents did not object to black students attending school with their children, they did draw the line when it came to their children having to attend schools that seemed to be unsafe black neighborhoods. So working class white people also argue that affluent white people were unfairly exempt from busing plans, which is true. As a result, anti-busing protests emerged across the nation and newly created private schools also developed as an option for parents to escape busing. So here's that part about white flight I was talking about a little bit earlier. So now that desegregation is happening and these private schools, these people who are like, I don't want my kid to go to school with a black person. So we're going to create a private school and our kids are just going to go to this private school and we're going to educate here so that black people will not be able to come and learn and be a part of the classroom with our kids. So. As white people fled urban school districts and busing in what officials call white flight, suburban areas experienced more economic development as urban areas lost some of their tax base. Despite the objections to busing, southern cities such as Charlotte prided itself on the success in busing. While scholars often view desegregation through a southern lens, busing reflected the racial inequities in the national public schools as white parents protested against busing in cities as diverse as Boston and Detroit. Busing also exhibited the gendered nature of racism as angry white mothers across the nation shouted racial epithets at black students on the buses. And so this is also the scenario I was giving you at the very beginning. You're going to school and these, they're literally adult grown people yelling at you, saying racial slurs, cursing you out, spitting at you, threatening you. As you go to school, you are less than 18 years old, from 17 to 6, all the way down to 6. And you have people saying some of the most harsh things 
adults that you have never done anything to. You're literally just trying to go to school and learn and trying to become something. Maybe one day, you know, if our country will allow it. So this is really messed up when you think about it. You really process it. It is really, really messed up. And then don't forget the funding part. So remember, money goes where the people go a lot of times, and especially at this time where white people went. So a lot of the urban schools that generally had were predominantly white, when they went white flight and went to the suburbs, a lot of the funding from the inner city went out to the suburban areas. And so the schools, once again, that black people were in, they're supposed to be desegregated, once again, started to get less funding. So while President Johnson supported desegregation efforts, the Nixon administration reflected a conservative turn in the educational policy. As President Richard Nixon spoke openly against busing, he ordered limited federal funding to districts to purchase buses despite their request. Although a national issue, the resentment over busing was one of several important factors that led to the resurgence of the Republican Party in the South as it became a safe haven to those angry with busing. And what they saw as increased intervention by the federal government. And so here's the thing with a lot of times Southern states and state rights, you know, because we all know the civil the Civil War had nothing to do with state rights, but if it does, the state right to own slaves, that was the state right that they really wanted from and not having federal government intervention. It would be great if necessarily, maybe you didn't have to have federal intervention because the people in that state, in that area, actually did what's best for all the citizens in their district, counties, and states. The issue is that that's just not happening. And it hasn't happened since then and doesn't happen now. And that's why federal government intervention is still needed in a lot of these situations. So like states' rights and these things, well, it would be great if they did everything that was good for all citizens and not just a few of those citizens who are the ones who have benefited from the history of America the most. So while majority of African-American parents supported busing, to expedite desegregation, their children often bore the burden as they left their homes very early in the morning to attend school sometimes 20 or more miles from their home. While integration meant that Black children could now attend schools with greater resources, they sometimes encountered racism from their white peers and teachers. Black children who lived in suburban neighborhoods also had to overcome stereotypes of racial inferiority promoted by white students and teachers. They also had to navigate class differences among black children bust in our own poor neighborhoods. Attending, and by class, it means like there was almost a caste system. Um, not almost, it was a caste system that enslavement created inside of our society where like supposedly white people are better than black people. So there's a, a class navigation that people had to work on differences. All right. Attending schools far from their communities caused additional problems for black parents and students. For example, students could not do extracurricular activities and parents could not attend teacher conferences or participate in the PTA if they did not have to ride home, if they did not have a ride home. Additionally, teachers also had to contend with court decisions mandating faculty desegregation that called for every school to be 80% white and 20% black. These rulings ordered the transfers of hundreds of black teachers to white schools. With their move, these teachers suddenly lost their status as they assumed their roles on the new faculty and white schools. The loss of black teachers also 
decimated black institutions as the character of these schools suddenly disappeared. By the late 1970s, African-Americans, once proponents of busing, now became wary as they saw the beloved neighborhood schools deteriorate or close. They wanted desegregation to be a two-way street, not a process of dismantling their schools. In the North, black parents who wrestled with school boards to gain community control. The supportive relationship between black parents and teachers regarding discipline also disintegrated as protective black parents viewed discipline through a racialized lens as black children were often punished for minor offenses in greater degrees than white ones. By the 1990s, antipathy towards busing transformed into the community schools movement that advocated for neighborhood schools and pushed school districts to abandon their desegregation plans. So here's the thing, and this is why it's systemic racism. This is why it's systemic. It's in our laws. It's in our, it's baked into the rules. Here's the thing. So if you look at it, like I said before, because black students were bused to the suburban schools where they were funded, there wasn't that many white kids bused to inner city schools. So these schools weren't funded as well. And students who probably should have been bused, who were probably more fluent, as we talked about earlier, more fluent white families, they made sure their kids did not go to um, inner city schools. So they went to private schools. And so all of the money, even from funding, um, is going literally to those schools in the suburbs where the schools that were predominantly black at first, who should like you should want a deer segregation where it's both ways, black people coming to white schools, white people coming to black schools, and we're having these really good schools. It's not happening like that. And so the schools that are predominantly black are taking the brunt of it and not getting funded and still have less resources. And so it's starting to break down the, the schools in that neighborhood and the community. Once again, the same thing. And this is structural decisions by people, but this is based, this is structural. You know, these are based in these laws and rules and regulations that people um, set up from the beginning and then then implement and then really bring in the people who are affected by it to make a lot of these decisions. While Brown continues to be celebrated as a civil rights milestone, as we look at the problems of poverty and racial segregation in today's public school, some people argue that the decision resulted in a dismal failure at some 80% of black children now attend segregated schools nationally. Despite this view, today's schools are not as resegregated as they once were in the South. From 1954 to the late 1980s, the rate of black children attending white schools rose tremendously in the South, from 0% in 1954 to 43.5% in 1988, only declining after dismantling of the court's ordered desegregation plans, and it went down to 232 in 2011. The South remains the least segregated area of the nation. Interesting, right? The current resegregation of the public school are due more to the declining support of desegregation by local district, the federal government, and the Supreme Court. So what you'll see here is that it seems to be going similarly back to what it was, unfortunately, because I'm really thankful. I went to a high school that was, it was predominantly black, but we had different people from different races there. We had white people, Asian people from different races. And I absolutely loved it because I learned so much that I did not know about different cultures and different people and different things. I'd be like, oh, shoot, I didn't know y'all did things like that. And it made me see the world in a much bigger way uh, and have more empathy and acceptance and love and care for other people that 
I just didn't know about, that I had already my own made-up stereotypes about because I'd just never been around and never experienced it. So it's kind of messed up that it seems to be um, trending back in that way. And so education is a big thing we got to focus on. As a result of Brown versus Board of Education, Black children, while no longer legally barred from attending white schools, are now limited by class status and neighborhood location. Although busing attempted to overcome residential segregation, it could not withstand the national backlash. While Brown addressed discrimination against Black people, today Latino children comprise the majority of several large urban school districts in the U.S. Although they were not legally segregated by race in most areas, Latino children continue to face discrimination despite the advent of policies such as the bilingual education that helps all immigrant children. Most Black and Latino children in these areas attend schools with double the segregation of race and poverty. Historically, public schools accepted children regardless of class status, but now they face competition for more selective charter schools and other school choice initiatives that affect racial diversity goals as well as class. Also, children who grew up in suburban middle class or moving to gentrified urban neighborhoods and sending their children to private schools. In major urban cities across the nation, middle class parents, regardless of race, have abandoned public schools due to fears of limited quality and violence negatively affecting discrimination goals. Charter schools and voucher programs have emerged as options for parents who wish to avoid sending their children to poorly functioning public schools, but the results remain mixed. While as a democratic nation, we appreciate Brown's demand to end racial segregation in schools and cite the benefits of diversity, the initial ambitions of Brown remains unfinished and its legacy complicated. As education officials debate the merits and the impact of school choice initiatives, we must not abandon the need for diversity in public schools. So this is what's super important, like making sure that we understand how our kids in our community are educated, whether you have a kid or not, is of, to me, some of the most utmost importance for our kids to not just get um, an education in the fact that they went to a nice school, but to a well-rounded education that is diverse in understanding and helps people to develop empathy and just a commonality with humans in general is so important. I think that will, and I know that will change a lot of things that we have going on that unfortunately adults have learned through their school experience where you went to school with everyone looked like you and you didn't really get to experience like how's the life with someone else? Or maybe it's that one or two students there and you maybe you understood and had a conversation with them on how they really felt inside about what's going on and how different they feel and out of place that they feel at times. And maybe you didn't, but I tell you from my experience, it happens and you feel it very deeply on the inside. And so, you know, trying to quote unquote, be yourself, Enneagram, unmask things, go deeper, it can be difficult because part of you has a mask on because you're trying to not only necessarily fit in, but you're trying to make sure that you look the brand of successful or okay in that area. So it's it's a it's heavy. I'll tell you that. That's probably the best way to explain it. So when it comes to education, I definitely for people who are educators who love education, this is a place where we need to know what's happening with our school board. We need to know what's happening within the schools, and we need to be fighting for equity, equality, and a better education that involves social-emotional learning as well. A lot of times, it's just um, head knowledge. We learn it in school, 
and you don't understand the impact of how society is affecting each other and how to actually engage with people in a way that is understanding, that supports and understands like, wow, you're different or you're feeling this way or you came from this background and maybe that's why you're responding like you are. So I need to give you space and create space to understand you better and hopefully you understand me better as well. Our education system doesn't do that as a whole. It's being it's being added in social emotional learning, um, but it's not enough. And the funding a lot of times is still really messed up for schools. If you look around your district and you start to pay attention to it, it is ridiculous how little our teachers get paid for how much work they actually do. And so even when COVID hit and a lot of parents had to have their kids at home and had to like work on educating them or having them for the day and realizing a lot of them, the impact that teachers actually have and the, the, the energy that teachers constantly work with because they're not just dealing with like your one to possibly five kids. They're dealing with like 20 plus kids in the classroom. And sometimes, at least for inner city schools, and we talked about how the funding is messed up, how it's desegregated, how like our communities have been ravaged by a lot of um, systemic racism. We have a lot of kids who have a lot of trauma in their lives, big T and little T. And so that takes a lot out of a teacher, out of the school. And it's not that nobody there wants to give it, but it needs more resources to have that equity for a school who may have a classroom of 20 plus kids who didn't experience trauma. They don't need that extra help to make sure that they do the things that they can accomplish where they need to because they have all the resources and the foundation they need. These kids should have the same foundation that any kid has in America, especially here. If we're talking about you get to make your decisions and you make your life choices and this individualism, which we get stuck in. Well, let's make sure we give real equal footing to everyone. I heard this analogy, which I love. It's kind of like a baby at the hospital. At the baby at the hospital, some babies will need to just be swaddled, given the right tubes or whatever. I'm not exactly sure everything that happens, but given the right tubes and fed right so they're okay. But then some babies may be premature and they have to do a lot of different things to make sure that baby can breathe and live life. And so I look at education that way. Like if these kids over here need more resources so that they can have an equal footing to have really good education, to be able to contribute to society in a wonderful, beautiful way in their community and love themselves, then let's make sure we get them these resources. And these over here who may not need it, that's totally fine because we're trying our best to give them equal educational footing so that they can be great and contribute to our world and their communities. And so that's the big part about education. It is so important. So I get really fired up about it and I am not going to go too far in here, but when people make complaints about it, and I had a guy who on the last one on YouTube made this crazy assertion about these crazy stats and basically said he wasn't racist, but he blamed black men for the problems in the in United States, you know, and obviously I could have took that personal, but I didn't because it's like something's wrong with him. <laughs> but I went to the standpoint, I said, well, if you do feel that way, why don't you invest in education for black boys? If you feel that black men are so quote unquote the problem, well then start to invest and start to help school districts make sure that black boys are getting the education that they need and the support that they need so they won't become this so-called problem that you consider to exist uh, in America to be the problem for America. So it's things like that that um, fire me up and uh, make me passionate about 
uh, education in schools, it has literally changed my life working with the kids I work with, you know, because the situations you learn of and the, the kids and how resilient they are and their families, like it is so much a lot of these families go through. People will never understand if you've never been in one. Like you will not believe the, the amount of tragedy back to back to back to back that happens to these families. Like that is just it's not random. It's just like, it's just out of the blue. And sometimes it's just a part of life and a part of where they live and who they connect. So like, it's it's these things. It's not necessarily just an action they did. It's just things happening around them that impact them. And so there's a lot of this going on. And that's why I'm a big proponent of educational equity, 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 equity. I'm not talking about equality right now because we need equity before we can get to equality. All right. So we need to make sure that we're making sure all our districts are providing educational equity. So if you listen to this episode and you're wanting to get into it, like, listen, start paying attention to your school district, to your schools, find organizations. One of them that I'm a part of is Stand for Children. Um, I had to become more active. This is a lot going on with everything um, in COVID. But Stand for Children is one organization that stands for creating equity. And it's around the United States for kids who really need that in schools uh, and families. Okay. So I'm super passionate about that. Uh, I'm going to end it right there because I could go on for days talking about the uh, inequity in schools um, and how messed up those things are. I'm really passionate about it. Let me say that. Um, it touches my heart. So that's all I have for this episode. Remember, podcasting is not free for podcasters, but it is free for listeners. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash do it for the gram. And uh, you can support from $1 up to however much you can. Uh, it's greatly appreciated to keep this podcast going. Also, one thing I'm really excited to announce in January, I am teaching the Kaizen Complete Enneagram program. It's a 12-week, 36-hour-plus um, teaching for me, kind of like a college class. There's going to be community-based learning, and there's an online platform which you'll be doing work in between sessions. Super excited about that. You can check that out at kaizencareersacademy.thinkific.com, and it'll be in the show notes, so you can click on it and go there and check it out. I look forward to seeing you in January. Go ahead and sign up. I'm only teaching a small group that. Um, besides that, when we are doing work, inner work, make sure that we are also allowing that inner work to allow us to do outer work as well. Because it's not just about transforming ourselves, but it's also about transforming our community and the community outside of our community to make this place a better place. Um, because that's the only way it's going to happen is to do the inner work and the outer work. So. Now, thank you so much for listening. If you ever feel triggered and you feel like you're going to become reactive instead of responsive, breathe, make a smart choice and do it for the gram, the Enneagram, of course. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.